I'm Eileen Dunn and this is The God Slot. Marriage equality arrived to most of the United Kingdom on Saturday when the first same-sex weddings began taking place at midnight in England and Wales. Scotland is expected to follow suit in October, with the issue still facing strong political opposition in Northern Ireland. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, said on Friday night that the Church of England was dropping its opposition to same-sex marriage. The laws changed, he told the BBC. We accept the situation. The Church of Ireland Bishop of Limerick and Killaloo, the Right Reverend Trevor Williams, has announced his intention to retire at the end of July 2014. It's not a decision I have come to lightly, he said, but I'm convinced it's the right time for the diocese, my family and myself. Great Britain's Queen Elizabeth II and her husband, the Duke of Edinburgh, made an official visit to Rome yesterday. In the afternoon, the Queen, who's also the head of the Church of England, had an audience with Pope Francis at the Vatican, accompanied by Prince Philip. Next week, of course, Her Majesty will be greeting our President Michael D. Higgins on the first official visit of an Irish head of state to the United Kingdom. President Higgins, himself a poet, will no doubt emphasise the great contribution to English and world literature literature made by our writers. And so it's fitting that this week on The God Slot, we're honoured by a visit from one of our leading poets, John F. Dean. John has edited an edition of the Poetry Ireland Review due out at the end of this month and in consultation with the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr. Rowan Williams and other theologians, attempts through contemporary poems to tackle the question posed by Jesus, who do you say that I am? John, How did this project come about, first of all? Well, I've been reading and loving poetry for a long, long time. Um, I have been a Christian for a long, long time. And trying to put the two together, in this age where Christ is being divorced a little bit from church, um, I got the sensation that I would like to find references to Jesus Christ as a person in the tradition in poetry. So I came fairly close to it with some of the, the great poets like George Herbert or Jared Manley Hopkins, but nothing that really satisfied me as such. Uh, I had a chat with Rowan Williams because I did an interview with him and we discussed this notion of so-called religious poetry and decided that it's not a good term, especially in our time. So we, we shifted it perhaps to something like faith poetry, so I was actually climbing Crowpatrick uh, at the age of 68 for the first time in my life. Fair play to you. Uh, fair play to me. I made it to the top, but for the second half of the climb, it was in the mist and fog. And I found it exceptionally difficult and kept saying, no, I'm going to go back down. But no, I didn't. I stuck with it. At the top, uh, I was very anxious about getting back down again. And I deep down inside myself, I said, I'm going to make some use of this. So I'll ask the poets, I think, that I know, I think I'll ask them to write a poem for me on that perspective. Who do you say that I am? Make it a personal thing to the person of Jesus rather than writing out of a tradition. Then so I said, what no. kind of a response did you get? I got a wonderful response, uh, but I had to uh, get clarification and uh, a backup, if you like, from 
some people that this wasn't such a foolish idea that uh, people might respond to it and not just say, Dean is at it again. Does any of your own work appear in this publication? Uh, no, my own does not appear. Um, it's something I have been personally working on in my own poetry, trying to, to figure out who and what Christ is for our day and time and for myself personally. Um, but I do believe that somebody who does an anthology uh, doesn't put themselves in. Well, you've chosen three for us this evening. Would you like to tell us about the first piece? Uh, the first is by uh, Gillian Clark. She uh, is a very fine poet, very well known. Uh, her last book called Ice was uh, shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Prize and I expected she should win it. So she responded very quickly with uh, this very fine poem. It's called The Carpenter's Boy. They used to call him Little Solemn One when he didn't gurgle at their sing-song words but lay awake in his shawl, staring at them. Always awake. I worried. He didn't cry or laugh. His gaze would hold an adult's eye until they flinched and looked away. Before he could walk, he loved the workshop, the tools and wood, his toys. Sawdust in a shaft of sunlight made him wonder. And when wood uncurled from the plain to lie in yellow piles, he'd cry for me to, look, look, angel's hair. Sharp tools were not allowed. Dangerous. He gathered small things, a cube of sandalwood, the planed handle of a box, and once I prized bright metal from his curled fingers, silver in sunlight on his open palm, from the workshop floor, three nails. Years later, when we lost and found him, just a boy holding a crowd in thrall or raging in the temple, turning bankers from the house of God, when he lived wild, wore rags, preached socialism, consorted with disease and poverty, I remembered his small hand. Those toys. It's a beautiful evocation of a mother, isn't it? It is. Uh, it's quite traditional in its way, uh, but leads uh, very subtly and gently to the crucifixion, <laughs> even though she's only talking about... Uh, it's like a premonition, the three nails. Yeah. Exactly, yes. So uh, it's very nicely done. But it is uh, one of an extremely traditional background. Um, but I love it as a poem, and therefore, obviously, it's in there. It's um, the protective mother. It would recall a scene, too, from Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ when oh, Mary meets yes. Jesus carrying the cross and flashes back to him yes. where he fell once as a child and she's shouting, I'm there, I'm there, yes, as, as a mother always wants to be. Yes. And uh, I think from Gillian's, Gillian Clark's perspective, it is a very personal response of a mother to uh, an ordinary child, if you like beautiful poem. It is a beautiful poem. Now you made reference earlier to Seamus Heaney and I suppose yes. no anthology of poetry in Ireland could be without a poem by Seamus Heaney. When I asked him he said, uh, oh uh, this is after his last book Human Chain he said I'm, I'm not really working on anything there's nothing happening in my old head is what he said uh, but this, even being asked to do this he, he said stimulated him so he sent me a poem and he said uh, it's, it has actually got him writing again so I was delighted with the poem called The Late Comers. And then suddenly came another version of it through the post uh, with a little note on the bottom of it saying, 
uh, and of course there's no guarantee that this will be the final version. So unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, it is the final version. OK, let's, let's pause and hear it, sure. the latecomers. He saw them come, then halt behind the crowd that wailed and plucked and ringed him, and was glad they kept their distance. Hedged on every side, harried and responsive to their need, each hand that stretched, each brief hysteric squeal. However, he assisted and paid heed. A sudden blank letdown was what he'd feel, unmanning him when he met the pain of loss in the eyes of those his reach had failed to bless. And so he was relieved the newcomers had now discovered they'd arrived too late and gone away. Until he hears them, climbers on the roof, a sound of tiles being shifted, the treble scrape of terracotta lifted, and a paralytic on his pallet lowered like a corpse into a grave. Exhaustion and the imperatives of love vied in him. To judge, instruct, reprove, and ease them body and soul. Not to abandon, but to lay on hands, make time, make whole. Forgive. Now, if the Gillian Clark poem looked at the motherhood of Mary, this looks at the humanity of Jesus. It does, yes. And how he must have been so frustrated at times. Precisely. And if uh, you remember, in the last uh, months of Seamus's life, he was actually being asked to do an awful lot of readings. Um, and at the beginning of each reading, he would say, or somebody would announce, I'm not going to sign books because he couldn't. He wasn't able to at this stage. Um, so, in fact, in this particular poem, what I see is that Seamus Heaney has taken on the figure and the presence and the worries and the anxieties of Christ himself and understood how he felt, wanting to help everybody, unable to do it because of uh, constraints of crowds and so on. So uh, if this is not an insight into a personal response to the person of Jesus then nothing is so I'm absolutely thrilled especially with this final version Well that's what I was going to ask you yes. what was the timeline and were there many changes? Uh, there are a lot of changes um, mostly technical changes which I found even hugely more hugely interesting so in this last version there are rhymes and half rhymes and uh, an easier rhythm and a much tighter version on the first one. I thought the first one was magnificent when it arrived. But when I saw the, the changes he had made, I said, wow, this is really a poet. I thought at the, the height of his powers. So you can imagine the, the shock and the loss when, in mm -hmm. fact, uh, he died so soon after all of that. Now, you talk about it in a sense, reflecting his own personal journey yes. towards the end of his life. Um, I thought it was very significant that uh, Michael revealed at his funeral that his last words were, Nolly Timere, yes. be not afraid. Absolutely. Yes. Um, well, this is, uh, even in Seamus's presence, you always felt there was this about him, this Noli Temere, do not be afraid, that life uh, is just rich, wonderful, and to be lived. And so many of his essays are trying to draw out the positive from life. But uh, I do feel that for him, for Seamus, art and life emphasised the positive and the constructive and the loving and the caring as this poem, The Latecomers, exemplifies. Well, the final one we've chosen now is very different again. It's Dennis yeah. O'Driscoll. Yes. Uh, 
Genesis, if you move from um, Gillian Clark through Seamus and into Dennis, uh, you're back to the a form of agnosticism. I corresponded with Dennis over all of this, and this poem comes uh, after his last book, which just appeared in 2012, called Dear Life, in which he takes God on and attacks God in many ways. When I asked him uh, would he write again, he said, sure, he'd absolutely love to. So this poem is uh, called Update. Okay. God, I still miss you some days. Fondly recall our happier times. You used to take me into your confidence while I fessed up to my transgressions, owned up to grievous flaws. And, granted absolution, I would ascend to cloud nine, mind on higher things, ears only for your voice that conversed, not in our inarticulate vernacular, but through lapidary Latin, plain chant, exultant motet. I recall the wet cathedral evenings when your fair-weather friends had absented themselves, and we settled down by the fire of the votive candle shrine for a heart-to-heart confab, our conversation never flagging. What a good listener you always were to me, God. I so wish we hadn't quarrelled, on our separate ways, making too big an issue of the Jesuitical distinctions that divided us, failing to see eye to eye on articles of faith. I still watch out for news of you, gossip column tattle, and an obsessive divorcee track your movements, eager to learn which lovers take my place, what types you hang about with these days, what you're up to elsewhere as you expand your horizons, establishing new branches of your empire, propagating universes by the second. And you must feel a loneliness close to empty-nest syndrome now that so many of your erstwhile acolytes have flown the coop, escaped your cage, questioned your discretion, no longer prepared to submit to your rough justice, remain prisoners of your conscience. I'd say there would be a lot of people who would identify with that poem. Absolutely. There's a a sense of um, nostalgia, Uh, of loss uh, and of real genuine questioning uh, as to how can I possibly have lost all this wonder and still how can I accept all this wonder and I think that is uh, where we all stand. Uh, It's a wonderful thing, it's a terrible loss if we have lost it Um, and it's a very, very personal response. Now you told us at the beginning of the programme that you didn't put any of your own poetry in it, but we're not going to let the occasion pass without asking you to read one of your own poems. Would you do that for us? Of course. And tell us a little bit about it. Well, it's the the unknown soldier uh, who is speaking, Um, perhaps the guy who was at the foot of the cross and used the spear to uh, lance Christ's side or anybody else. But it is generally um, a representative of humanity trying to figure out who or what Jesus Christ was. He stumped us, this Jesus of yours, with his walking on water, fandango, entrechat, glissade, birthing, imagine, in a dark cave, out of all knowing. Then he walked the hard-baked earth of Palestine, but not as you walk or as I, for behind him the healing flowers grew, the Rose Bay Willow Herb, Chamomile, the John's Wort. 
We noted, too, that he could walk through walls, appearing suddenly in the midst of folk, as if he were always there, waiting that they might notice him. Oh yes, this too, he walked on air, leaving them gawping upwards as he rose higher and higher, like a skylark, walking into the invisible. That was later. But humankind will not be cheated of its prey, for we claimed him, hailing him fast to a tree that he could not move on water, earth or air, and we buried him in the under-earth, where, it is said, he took to walking once again, singing his lark song to the startled, to the stumped dead. John F. Dean, it's been a pleasure and a privilege. Thank you for joining us Thank on the Thank you very much indeed. On Wednesday afternoon, a service was held at Mount Jerome Cemetery in Harold's Cross in Dublin to remember and commemorate more than 200 babies and young children who died while in the care of the Bethany Mother and Babies Home during the first half of the 20th century. A monumental stone was unveiled which has engraved on it the names of all 222 children and our reporter Emer Horgan was there. People are gathering inside the Victorian chapel at Mount Jerome. Outside, there's a soft rain falling. A man is standing by a large headstone filled with the names of dead children. And my earliest memory was one with my nurse mother. And I, was, I had this image in my head of being in a pram, looking out, and there was blue sky and a tree. And a figure would come with a, a wide hat and look at me. Patrick Anderson McCoy is 69. He was born in the Bethany Home, a Protestant mother and baby home on the Orwell Road in Dublin. He was given to a paid carer, a nurse mother in Tipperary, and was neglected and very ill as a young child. So I had rickets, a bad heart, anemic, blue lips, you know, the rickets ahead and trouble with my legs and things like that. Eventually, he was adopted in Belfast and has spent much of his adult life searching for his identity. It's basically the truth. I just wanted to find the truth of what made me and how I came to be who I was. He did find his records and a half-brother and has achieved some sense of solace and closure. He's one of the lucky ones. Between 1922 and 1949, 222 babies and children died while in the care of the Bethany Home, which, as well as pregnant women, also housed remand prisoners. The dead children were buried in an unmarked plot. Their story is a part of Irish history that's relatively unknown. My name is Martin McGuire, and I'm a lecturer in history in Dundalk IT. Well, my interest was, was well, began as historical, but then it became a you could say I suppose a human rights issue then at that point. How do you think this equates with the various Catholic institutions that would have been run around the country? Was it very similar? It has the same problem of uh, power. Uh, The exercise of power that's unquestioned and that is unexamined. Uh, It also has, it shares with it a a contempt, I think, for the poor, uh, a contempt for the marginal, a contempt for young girls who got themselves into trouble. And uh, I think it also shares a uh, determination for to suppress. Suppress what? 
to suppress anything that uh, would, uh, I suppose the term would be, let the side down. My name is Mark, Mark Gardner. I'm one of the Church of Ireland clergy here in the city of Dublin. And I have a particular concern for people who find themselves in the minority and that they find themselves marginalised as a result. What does today mean to you? It means that a minority has been recognised and a stigma has been lifted and something like a curse has been washed away. And that means a lot to me because there have been so many minorities in Ireland over many years and people were stigmatised and marginalised. And now these people feel more at home in Ireland than they did before. My name is Susan Lohan from Adoption Rights Alliance. We're an advocacy and campaigning group for adopted people separated from their families of origin through adoption who uh, are seeking to make contact with those families again. I think, first of all, Derek Leinster has to be congratulated. What he and his family uh, have worked to achieve, it's taken decades, it's probably taken years off the man's life as well. So if it weren't for individuals like him, the Irish state would not step up to the plate on this issue. The current Irish government is avoiding this issue like the plague. They could so easily open adoption records or uh, mother and baby home records and allow people who have been separated through these dreadful institutions to reunite. What's happening at the moment is that the private agencies remaining in this field who own people's identities, they are dragging their heels, they are obfuscating and they're failing to put people back in touch with one another. And it actually, um, it's kind of bringing to pass Mike Malott's um, statement and that the tacit strategy is that you know agencies and government are going to deny till we all die you know I'm sure in a hundred years time there'll be marvellous inquests and inquiries into what went on. The driving force behind the campaign is Derek Lanster. Derek have you got a moment at Zimmer? have you got a minute how, how, how do you feel? Well it's, it's an amazing day it's one that I never thought I'd see I'd live to see and to think that we've got people from Australia, Portugal, um, Scotland, all over. It's just amazing what has happened. And uh, it's breathtaking. What kept you going? I'm addictive to doing things that are difficult. Um, I've always had a sense of representing right, the, the, the little man and the little people that people like to stamp on, because I'm so used to being stamped on. And I've always, well, uh, as far as I was concerned, I wanted to, to be able to stand up for them. His family are very clear about how they feel. Oh, well, I'm just very, very proud of him. Um, we put up with it 24-7, every day. Um, Is this day a big highlight for you? A big highlight, yes. To see the end of this... Is, is just marvellous, just marvellous. Yeah. You're happy lady today. Very happy lady, very happy lady. Yeah. I suppose we'll start on something else, but at least this is done, and I'm very, very proud of it. Very proud.
That report by Emer Horgan from the Bethany Home Memorial Service at Mount Jerome Cemetery in Dublin. And there are links to the Bethany Survivors Campaign on our website www.rte.ie forward slash the Godslot. Well, that's our programme for this week. The phone number is 01 208 2039. Our email address is godslot at rte.ie and our postal address, the Godslot, RTE Radio 1, Dublin 4. Next week, among other items, we hope to review the film Noah. So, good evening. Good evening.